Hello Mojo Record Club listeners. In today's episode, the last of 2022, we thought it'd be nice to share a few of our favorite highlights from the series so far. So sit back and lose yourself in a magical world of album esoterica, erudite chat, and deep cut knowledge, as shared with our fine selection of special guests. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. We feel like we're ready to start. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so, are you going to play the theme tune in? Okay, brilliant. Where does it go? <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of a little like that. <laughs> That'll do. Yeah, brilliant. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and this is the debut episode of the Mojo Record Club, a place to bring together record lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests, and share our love of classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are the Mojo editor, John Mulvey. Hello. And the brilliant Manchester-born composer, saxophonist, and poet, Alabaster de Plume, a.k.a. Gus Fairburn. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Via the power of recorded sound, we'll have a few personal words from the great Patti Smith. But I just want to say it's extra special to have Gus here, who's released one of my and Mojo's albums of the year in the shape of gold, go forward in the courage of your love, to give it its full title. A brilliant, swirling, euphoric, cathartic record that brings together, to my ears, everything from sinewy, fellacuti-style funk exhortations to ethereal gospel jazz and collectivist post-punk lullabies. (laughs) And if it's okay (laughs) with Gus, I think we should just hear maybe a little bit of that now Ah. just to get a sense of the vibe and the mood. Andrew, you're beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll we'll play play a bit of gold, yeah? Bastard Plume, now stars are lit, released by the International Anthem Recording Company. That was our producer, Suze, who'll be dropping in with details of the songs we're playing today. Thanks for having me in the room. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm um, among friends. That's good. That's yeah. the vibe we weren't, we're trying to get to. Yeah. I can feel a kind of um, a high energy. Slightly manic. Maybe. Yeah. You're, yes, but you're bringing us one. down in a good way. Yeah. Though, you know, Am I? Like, yeah. <laughs> Calming you, us down. Yeah. You it's might not know that you're the right people you might know it as a as an idea but you might not know it inside the, uh, your body but you, you but you look in there and you will see that you are the right people you're the perfect people for this moment that's good to know the best things you're going to do is probably going to happen because you responded to each other yeah and also, having someone like you, I thought you'd be able to give us some kind of benediction for the first one like this, yeah, and blessing. you just have. So it's, <laughs> like, it's amazing. Hey, it's... I know nothing. <laughs> I only work here. <laughs> Anytime, spirit. <laughs> you're doing so well, and it's tricky. And I love that you're doing it. You're doing very well. It's not always easy. And you're listening to the Mojo Record Club.
I think it's a good opportunity to talk about the record you've brought in for us to listen to oh, today. Oh, wow, yeah. Yoko Kano and the Seatbelts. Yeah. And her soundtrack to the 1998 anime series Cowboy Bebop. Yeah. Cowboy Bebop is about a group of traveling bounty hunters in space. Perhaps we should hear a little clip of the series and the music. Have a listen. I think it's time to blow this scene, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Kakano and the Seatbelts, Tank, released by Victor Entertainment. So, Gus, when did you when did you first discover this music? Well, I was watching the telly, but this is one of the reasons why I was because uh, I don't watch telly. But it was back in the day when I was living a different life. What year would it, it have actually, been? It was I was probably actually in the nineties. Right, when I was a kid watching telly, and somebody was asking me, "Oh, how did you get into jazz?" You know, recently because obviously I've been doing these interviews, and then like. Hmm, let me see. Hmm, was it uh, John Coltrane? And was it, oh no, what is the actual truth? Uh, and I go, let's, no, come on, let's be vulnerable and tell the honest truth. And I thought, no, may, well, maybe it was Captain Beefheart. <laughs> no, no, there's something, no, there's something before then that's really true. What is it, Gus? And it's like, because I was watching a cartoon. I'm Gina Birch, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. My guest today is the musician, artist, and filmmaker Gina Birch. Gina was a founder member of inspirational post-punk feminist The Raincoats, creator, amongst other things, of one of the most extraordinarily strange and beautiful albums of that whole post-punk era, 1981's Odie Shape. She is also a filmmaker, a brilliant painter, and has just released the first single from her forthcoming debut solo LP, I Play My Bass Loud out on Third Man Records in February 2023. That spirit of eclecticism, playfulness, and kind of just pulling in lots of different ideas from lots of different places feeds into the album that you've brought along to talk about today. Um, Can you say what that record is? Well, it's a funny thing because uh, when I first saw them, they they were uh, called. They had. <laughs> it's funny because I I don't know how to say it. It's like uh, it, it was it was I C U or Iku Isu yeah. Iku, and then they had to change their name because there was already an Iku, and so it's now I Q U. Um, Yeah, it's pronounced Iku, isn't it? Iku. Well, I don't even know. I mean, the thing is, it was like falling in love. I'm going to pause you and I'm going to say exactly what it is and then we can kind of start. It's called, the album is called Chotomatea Moment. It's the debut album by an Olympia, Washington-based Japanese-American group who would probably be categorized at the time as lo-fi Sample Delica or something. Anyway, it was released in 1998 on Calvin Johnson's K Records label. And in 1998, I would have been listening to loads of stuff on on K. And I have no memory of this group whatsoever. So tell me how you discovered them. 
Well, at that time, I had a band called The Hangovers. I yes. don't know if you've ever heard of The Hangovers, but we released a an album on um, Kill Rock Stars, yeah. friends of Calvin and K Records, and I was doing a little tour with The Hangovers in America, and I happened to be in Minneapolis, and I got invited to this gig. And it was a funny thing because, shall I tell you the story of the evening? Please do. I, I was playing with the hangovers and I, then we were quite quite hungry. So we went for a meal um, because we knew this band was playing later. And I ordered, uh, I ordered a, um, a sandwich with, with uh, I think, with chips. And, of course, it came with crisps. And being uh, a little bit tired and, like, weary, I, I sent it back. Yeah. And I said, I wanted fries. I'm sorry, I'm English. Anyway, they must have been really mad at me because I think they must have spat or put something horrible in the sandwich. Oh. So I go to this uh, gig and I see this band playing, and I completely fall in love with them. The sound is amazing. And this is this is EQ that you're this watching. This is EQ, and there's a double bass player. And of course, being a bass player, I, you know, I, I always loved bass. You know, I love the double bass. I love fretless bass. I love bass. And so, you know, the idea of a double bass is just always amazing. And the theremin, you know, I'm completely in love with the theremin. And and these beats and this amazing woman on, on keys. And I just, I just, at that moment, the sound and the visuals just completely bowled me over. I felt I felt completely in love with them. And it was it was instant, you know. And um but during the course of the gig, I was getting iller and iller and iller. And I thought I was about to die. <laughs> so there I was watching the most brilliant band, feeling like I was in heaven watching this band, while feeling like I was in hell physically. And, and about to expire. Um, so it was the most peculiar thing. But I, I knew that this band was very important to me. And I can't remember if I got the, the CD that night, but I did get the CD very soon. And it was also a jewel of an object because it's in this pale blue kind of um, like plastic, uh, but but almost like rubber, uh, plasticky rubber pale blue case and and it was just beautiful I loved the color I loved the feel of it I loved everything about the case and then I loved everything about the sound so this object to me was always incredibly precious that's all really that happened uh, you know I, I was just thinking about the ridiculousness of like James Blunt you know the falling in love with the woman on the train you know you're beautiful and I may never see you again and I thought oh I'm a bit like that with this with this pale blue gorgeousness you know I, I fell completely in love and then that was it I never saw them again heard of them again or anything the thing I really like about this album, Gina, is that it works as 
a complete object. Whoever sequenced the tracks has done a brilliant job on it because it's not just about how individual tracks work. It's also about how one track leads into another. Definitely. I love the end of track two, you know, where, where we get the, the, the chaos then going into possibly numyo or I'm not sure or what, what they're saying, and then to the kind of slowed down Beatles bit and then the Swan Lake and then, and then, and then from, from all this kind of chaos, we go into this beauty, this kind of peacefulness, which, which reminds me of what happens in the film in Delicatessen, where I think there's a cello player and a, re- and a theremin and, and two of my most favorite sounds. And, and it's just so peaceful and heartwarming and heart-wrenching and I love it to bits. Okay, back to back and perfectly sequenced. Let's listen to Yoparai, open brackets, A Drunkard Who Fell From Heaven, close brackets, followed by the opening to Can't You Even Remember That, both written by E. Koo and released on K Records. And I think in a way it sums up why this album is is so special that it, I, one of the jobs that I have doing this podcast is to listen to a record and in a way kind of get the measure of it and kind of say, oh, well, this album is clearly doing this and da, 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 da. And I'm letting, letting, letting light in on magic of how it works. And the thing, I actually found it really difficult with this record because I feel like I'm at a stage where I'm going to have to keep going back to it and it's st- I still haven't got the measure of it, yeah. which makes sense that you've been listening to it for twenty years, on and off, on and off, not and constantly. I still don't have the measure of it. Yeah, and yeah. I think and I think that's its beauty, and I'm so glad that you you've chosen it for the podcast because it is it is a puzzle. Yes. And I love Whistle and I love Alouette. And, you know, there's so many tracks on there that are just so great. And, you know, I I love people to listen to it. I've now got a new record in my collection and completely new discovery in an album that I just, you know, is going to be with me for years now. You've been exploring it with me. That's what we try and do, that it's kind of, you know, it's basically, I think in a way you've just summed it up perfectly there. It's exploring the record with the guest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And no, it's been it's been a joy. So thank you. Thank you. Lots of fun. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Hello. Just a quick note to say that there is some swearing in this episode of the Mojo Record Club podcast. It's only one word, but we do say it quite a lot. So if you're offended by swearing, then um, just proceed with caution or give this one a swerve. Thanks a lot. Hiya, this is Tim Burgess, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. 
Tim. Yes. How did you first discover the strange world of Armand Sharbrook? Okay, so um, I was given a book called Copendium, uh, Julian Cope's book. I think it came out in 2012, and I picked it up round about then, and just flicked through it because it was, you know, it's such. It is like it looks like the Bible. This, I'll show you my research, really, uh, all my props. So I brought the records. Oh, great! How have you got the, uh, yeah. the triple? Uh, got that, got that, and triple quadraphonic nut job as well. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's all we were talking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then, but, how oh, I've, oh, I've got a listen to my book. Corpendium, that's oh, kind yeah, of yeah. how oh, yes. I found out about him. So it's got it's got silver gothic lettering, yeah, and it's black and leather yeah, bound. It kind thick. of it, it looks like a serious, massive tome. It's doesn't a really, it? It's it is. Yeah, it really is. And um, so I, I flicked through it, and um, and before that, you knew nothing about nothing, the man. nothing at all. Yeah, yeah so it's, I mean, just really interesting. Uh, you know, I found found myself, um, you know, feeling good that Julian liked. Um, you know, The Rocker by Thin Lizzy. And yes. It's like, that's my yes. favourite Thin Lizzy. And then my favourite Kiss song, uh, Parasite. And I was yeah. like, OK, I'm in good company. And I, <laughs> I had, had um, Condo by Psychic TV and I had uh, Eskimo by Residence. And then I thought, so I thought when I started reading about Armand, I thought, yeah, it's going to be good. But when he sends in the letter saying, please kill me, yeah. Julian's yes. response is, Armand, I love you, man. It's you and me forever. <laughs> so good. It is. Yeah. Maybe we should give it a little bit of background um, because it's good stuff. Okay. Um, Armand Sharbrook was born in Rochester, New York in 1944 into a household with a, that had a Belgian father who'd suffered seriously in the war and had post-war PTSD. So it was kind of grew up in quite a kind of chaotic and anxious household and in 1962 at the age of 17 he was sentenced to three years in a maximum security prison age 17 for committing a string of 32 burglaries including breaking including break-ins in hardware stores schools a church yeah. um and once he was released from prison at the height of Beatlemania. He and his brother started selling electric guitars out of their mum's basement. And they also opened a bit... You'll like this, scene. They opened a beatnik cafe called The Black Candle. I was on, aware. On Lake Ontario. And the guitar shop eventually became the legendary house of guitars in Rochester, New York. Mm. But he also started recording music in the basement. First record he recorded in 1968 um, was... Um, wasn't released until 1975. It was I'm trying to just how how I describe it. Um, it's called "A Lot of People Would Like to See Armin Sharbrook Dead," mm-hmm. and it's quadraphonic, beat poetry, blues rock, rock opera about the American prison system and his own time in it, going quietly mad. Andy Warhol had plans to turn it into an off-Broadway play before he was shot by Valerie Solanas. Mm. And Sharbrook released four LPs during the 1970s. Because of his time in prison, he called his group Armand Sharbrook Steals, but also maybe because of the eclectic approach to music yeah. that he has. And also because it spells ass, doesn't it? A-S-S. <laughs> yes, let's not forget that. It spells and ass. The, and the Steals comes from the burglaries, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and safe-cracking yeah, as, well. safe yeah. as well. Yeah, he was a safe-cracker wow. as well. And um, probably, so he, knew, he knew his onions. Probably basically. the most famous album is uh, one from 1978 called, because of its title, really, called Ratfucker. 
Yeah. And, um, but the one that you've brought in today mm-hmm. is Ratfucker's kind of, it's got a kind of bar band rock opera chaos to it. It's amazing. It? It's yeah. amazing. I mean, it could have been any of the three, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the first one because, you know, um, the, the one Armin Shabrook did because of the, you know, the history of it. And yeah. There's like lots of drawings on the inside of the record of him being in prison and stuff yeah. like that. And, um, so that's his most autobiographical one. Yeah, it's very it? confessional. Yeah. Uh, and and, and the, the idea that Andy Warhol wanted to do something kind of like, you know, tip tip, really, for me. Yeah. Um, uh, Ratfucker is, is amazing and it's kind of like, you know, it's always at the front of my record collection. You know, it's yeah. like if people come in and, and notice it, well, they can't not notice it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a good party piece. We should yeah. describe the cover of, um, of Ratfucker because it's fantastic. Well, all of his covers are fantastic. <laughs> yeah, but we've, we've, yeah. So basically, hang on, okay. Tim has kindly brought in all the albums, <laughs> so if you can kind of just pass them over to me. Okay. The cover of his debut, which amazingly was recorded in 1968, That's is that right? Mad. Yeah, Astonishing. It's so it was released in 1975, but recorded in 1968. It's called A Lot of People Would Like to See Armand Sharbrook Dead. Yeah. And it's basically got him smiling a kind of idiot grin on the front, but with a bullet hole through his head. It's the best title for a day. Right? Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's like no one knows who he is. No. And it's kind of, but it's, you know, it's incendiary, it's controversial, yeah, yeah. it's argument starting. Yes, it is. It's fantastic. <laughs> but, um, Ratfucker, which for years I thought was a European record. I thought it was like French or Belgian right. because of the surname. Yeah. And also because on the cover, you've basically got him in sort of mirror shades yeah. with a striped top yeah. and holding up a flick knife with very badly rendered blood running down it. And the flick knife is going through the head of an even more poorly rendered rat um, with, a, with, a, with its tongue sticking out and blue eyes. And... The record that you've brought to talk, brought in to talk about, Armand Sharbrook's I Came to Visit But Decided to Stay. Mm-hmm. Do you describe the cover of that one, Tim? Well, so he's holding a picture of a nun, which is Sister Jennifer. Mm. Um, there's a guitar there that I've only ever seen Paul Stanley use before from Kiss. Yeah, uh, I don't know the name of it, but Thai Paul Sandra definitely does. And he's sitting on a gravestone... Uh, uh, with some roses scattered. He's drinking some kind of liquor, hard liquor. He's dressed as, as a reverend. And um, I think as the story goes, basically, this, it's a concept album, as, yeah. as I'm, I'm as sure they all are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically is in love with um, Sister Jennifer, um, who has dedicated and her life to Jesus and is married to Jesus, wearing his ring. And um, she can't kill herself uh, because she'd be in purgatory. And uh, so he has to kill her. (laughs) It's like the standard theme of most rock albums, I mean, (laughs) isn't it? You know, it's kind of... And then he... So after he kills the nun, Mm -hmm. what is his response to it? He goes to visit her grave. Yeah. And went to visit, but decided to stay. So he lives on the yeah, grave. He, he lives, lives on the grave. He lives on the grave. How romantic. And, and it's, how it's, would it's, you... It's insanely romantic. It's a really difficult question, this one, but how would you describe the sound of this record? There's little bits of Elvis in there. I mean, imitation Elvis, I yeah. think. You know, um, 
possibly bad imitation of Elvis, but the thing that comes through is uh, it's, it's a pop album. But I, I think how you described it before is like barroom kind of stuff, like really debauched barroom yeah. kind of um, New Yorky. It's almost like there's a kind of grotty street version of Lou Reed without like street the, hustle with, there without the of, art, without yeah, the pretensions towards uh, art. Yeah. 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 So you've got that kind of you've got the repetition, you've got the fact that he's singing about kind of street people and, and, and religion and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So yeah. so many crossover points with Lou Reed. Yeah. But much more grotty. Really grotty. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and um, you know, I mean it's quite you know, quite visionary visionarily grotty in visionarily some ways. Grotty. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing it so long ago and, you know. Well, that's it. There yeah. is it. I mean, we're, we're forgetting about when these albums were recorded. So he records them between 1968 and 78. So they're in the window. They're in a pre-punk window, pre-punk window aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah. And yet so many of the themes and sounds that are going on there are basically what would become punk yeah. rock. And the level of playing as well. level of playing is amazing. The, the guitar yeah. in is just incredible. And the, 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 you know, the, the girl singers that are pretty much on all of the tracks I really like, you know? That's the other, I mean, that's the other thing as well. There is a, there's a... There's a sort of rock opera quality to them as well, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. Because I was thinking, but listen to it, it's a, bit, it's a bit like School's Out or something, isn't it? You know, yes! It's quite short and condensed, but it really takes you places. Yeah. You know, it could conceivably go on for much longer because you kind of go into it and then emerge with your head kind of spinning. So it has got Alice in there as well. Yeah. Yeah, very much elements of Alice yeah. Cooper in there. What's that black and white album, uh, Alice Cooper's Love album? It to Death. Yeah, that one. Yeah. That one. Yeah, so it's, it, yeah, kind of so post pretties for you but pre-schools out yeah yeah it's the best alice album right, right yeah right, right. definitely and also <laughs> you was going to say something go on I, I, I was wondering when i can come in with my uh, julian cope uh, right thing, now which, which disrupts the flow somewhat but no mind no this is good because i okay ian i would like to ask you how you discovered armin sharp well i'll tell you funnily enough tim yes. it was uh, when me and andrew worked at select magazine many years ago uh-huh. one of my uh, assignments was to go to julian cope's house wow. and talk about his possessions yes and we saw things like the the fried turtle shell and the turtle explodes leather amazing, jacket amazing, amazing and he also said and look at this record and it was rat fucker you know which is we didn't play it on the day but because it sears itself so much onto your brain yeah you know you don't forget you don't forget so consequently when the internet arises yeah and everything is simultaneous again yeah i went, I went and found out a lot more about him which is almost a shame in a way you know to know that he is a mortal man <laughs> with normal needs <laughs> and a guitar shop well it's a really um there's a really sweet kind of like a video on youtube of, of him showing you around his shop and um uh, you know it's, it's about 15 minutes and, and it's not but it's more of an emporium really it's like there are there's you know pictures of you know every kind of like pop star that's been into his shop yeah uh, you know from um um it's like signed elvis stuff and all that kind of thing beatles and, and records and guitars you know but i think it did say um uh that for all the rare records, uh, for all the rare guitars that you can't get, and uh, we've got three of them, mm. you know, so so he's a real collector of just mad stuff, yeah. you know. Here's a pair of Jimi Hendrix's pans. He left them at a Moody Blues party in the 60s, and I don't know what he left wearing, but he left his pants there, and we got them from Denny Lane, who was in Moody Blues at the time, and then he was later in Paul McCartney's Wings. Uh, This is a John Lennon-owned military jacket and sweater.
I'm Barry Adamson, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. My guest today is the great Barry Adamson, who is speaking from. Where are you speaking to us from today? I'm uh, Brighton by the Sea. Very nice. And uh, a little introduction. Barry is a musician, a composer, a writer, a photographer, and a filmmaker. He grew up in Manchester's Moss Side, taught himself to play bass overnight before joining Post Punk Progressives magazine. After an astonishing three years playing with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, he launched his solo career with the great Moss Side story, arguably the first ever soundtrack to an imaginary film. And he has subsequently worked on films by Derek Jarman, David Lynch, Oliver Stone and Danny Boyle, as well as charting his own path as an architect of pop noir and paranoid funk on solo albums such as the recently reissued Oedipus Schmiedipus, plus Stranger on the Sofa and Back to the Cat, both released on September the 23rd. the suavely romantic inner moment of clarity from Barry Addison's semi-autobiographical 1995 album Oedipus Schmiedipus, originally released on Mute Records and recently reissued by Mute Records in July of this year. I sent you through a copy of the new um, McKay and McRaven album in these Did times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, what had you come across him before? I had like um, I think over the last two years, uh, uh, Universal Beans had, had been had been a bit of a, a staple, especially when people were saying like, "Oh, have you heard this?" And you go like, "Well, have you heard this?" You know, because it's just just something incredibly uh, visionary about about it that that that's enriched with with uh, an older mind and an older soul and spirit. And embracing uh, what's going on now with sampling and all the rest of it, and has gone before and hip hop, but in a seamless, in, in a less obvious way than you would think, you know. And you, you'd be hard pushed to kind of see how the compositions. So for me, it feels like brand new composition on, a, on an old theme, you know. And you, you can you can kind of feel, you know, the, the, the people of the past going like yeah go on because it's really it's really pushing it into into another place with sort of smatterings of alice coltrane and, and beautiful gracious stuff going on yeah absolutely and i think the new album does exact does more of that the i'll do you i'll give you uh, the listeners a little bit of a background he basically this new album's assembled from studio and live sessions he yeah. was a Paris-born jazz percussionist, lives in Chicago, he's also an improviser and an architect of what he calls organic beat music, which is basically sampling and cutting up his own spontaneous improvised live recordings and, and adding beats, kind of almost in a way as like a throwback to say someone like the, the late Jay Diller, you know, but, yeah. uh, but, but kind of with an, an awareness of 
improvisation and live music. And the That's new album, the new album, I think kind of moves away a bit from the more overt sort of hip hop rhythms and self sampling style into something more orchestrated and organic. Mm -hmm. And you can hear stuff in there. It's like West African drumming, folk music. There's Morricone in there, mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier. But also yeah. I'm hearing like the Herbie Hancock's Blue Note recording, stuff like Empyrean Isles and Maiden yeah. Voyage. Yep. I mean, each of the tracks has a strange relation to it itself and each other, but in a freshly composed way as well. I think that the Morricone... Like, I think this dream another is this track with these guitars going on and then you get the calling which is from another place and then the uh, there's a lullaby which is very uh, alice coltrane but it's still i think it's i think that for me it reaches a, a state of grace from all the other stuff that, that's been going up yeah as you say the more obvious like slightly heavier handed sampley hip-hop beat stuff he, he's able to sort of almost relax himself on that in a knowing confidence and pull something together which feels totally original but you can at the same time you you, you can like rely on each track and bathe in each track i think it's beautiful a really good example of that and i'll play a little um, little bit of that now is a track called the fours which uh, also came out as a little video as well by Michaela McRaven on his new album In These Times released by International Anthem Nonsearch and XL. So hard just just to listen to a little bit of that track because you're yeah. getting pulled in aren't you you're hearing yeah. the sort of as you said the Alice Coltrane style harp mm. and then you that little kind of hovering horn signature as well. That's the, the, the sampling process to cause a sort of hypnotic loop in there as well, which is not the obvious thing of, you know, a beat that just repeats. It's genius. Absolutely. And I think, I think you're right. His kind of skill in working with kind of loops and rhythms, but mm. taking it away from the obvious, taking yeah. it away, taking it away from the beat, concentrating on, as you say, the sort of the hypnotic, something almost kind of spiritual to it. Yeah. I think he's probably he's got a, a bunch of trusted improvisers around him as well who come in, you know, because you can hear in the playing the way they're feeling what's going on like a listener would, you know. It's really great. What's also, I think, striking about it is just like you can hear how well as well miked everything is, you know, yeah. how yeah. everything, you know, seems to be positioned and how the, the you know, the instruments sound so live and in the room. Beautiful. I, I, I was listening to that. It's like a pristine kind of quality that sometimes can be a little off-putting. It can be a bit too like, ooh, because I remember there was a point in jazz when it was almost a turn-off because of that pristine, you, you know, you lost that sort of pushiness, the, you know, the, all that sort of stuff. And he's brought that around again by using the, the, the sampled world, you know, of the bit, you know, bit crushing slightly with the pristine uh, of obviously evolution of recording now that you can do. 
and fuse them together in a really great way as well. So you can, you're, yeah, you can see the person playing in the room and feel the, the energy around them and, and that kind of thing. It'd be interesting to see where he goes next because you want him to retain that rawness, don't you? You want him to retain that power and yeah, not yeah. go not go too far far down that kind no. of clean the clean lines. You know, there's sort of you know there's a prettiness there which yeah. I like in the context of this album, no, but I'm just album. a little bit worried about you know in terms yeah. of where he goes next. <laughs> it's like the Bowie thing, isn't it? Where he says, you know, if you start to get comfortable, then you need to sort of like push yourself a little bit more because you then, you know, you're in a place where nothing's challenging anymore and you can't, you can't create from that place. It's just, it just doesn't work. Okay, you ready? I'm Thurston Moore and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. <laughs> Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and this is the Mojo Record Club podcast, a place to bring together record lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests, and share our love of classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. Today, we're in central London at the height of the UK heatwave. It's very, very hot, and all the fans are on. So we might sound a little different because we're joining you remotely rather than in person from our regular studio, but we are still overseen by our regular producer, Suze, who will be dropping in to tell you what records we've just listened to. My guests today are Mojo News Editor Ian Harrison. Hello, everybody. And a man I first saw live at the University of London in October 1985 with <laughs> Sonic Youth. Thurston Moore. Hello, Thurston. Hello, hello. How are you coping with the heat? Oh, I love it. I Oh, <laughs> God. I, yeah. I mean, I say that with conflict because we know that this is sort of the, the end of the universe. But other yeah. than that, I, I, I you know, I'm, I, I was a, I'm a Florida boy by birth. Yeah. Oh, of course. Right. So, yeah, it kind of, it's in my DNA a bit. So I always, uh, yeah. I appreciate it for a while. <laughs> yeah. But it was, I think it's probably nice that we didn't have to travel in on the tube this morning. Uh, good. Come on, we have technology, <laughs> you know, why, why, yeah. why move? <laughs> exactly. Why leave the yeah. house? Why leave your bed? You know, we just, you know, this is our, our new world. I'm so glad that you were up for doing this. It my, should be, uh, my pleasure. It should be, a, it should be a nice chat. And Suze, shall I, um, shall I start? Fine with me. Oh, what happened to you there? Did we just lose our producer? Yes, you did. We did. Yeah. Yeah. Anarchy reigns. <laughs> exactly. Kick over the statues. <laughs> oh, that was just... Oh, here we go. I'm okay. praying now. There shouldn't be any dropouts. Hey, it's cool to drop out, Suze. Mm. Cool to drop out. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very mojo thing to say. <laughs> exactly. So it's, a, it's an old... Uh, it used to be our old banner headline. Yeah, right. Drop yeah. out with mojo. Yeah. yeah. Thurston... Is what, can, what? How can I describe it? An alternative rock improv and noise thaumaturge. He's worked with such godheads as Yoko Ono, John Zorn, Cecil Taylor, Faust, Glenn Branca, and Erman Schmidt. He's a teacher of writing, poetry, and music, and he's also released seven solo albums since 1995. Psychic Hearts, including a recent collection of lockdown instrumentals, Screen Time, and 2020's By the Fire, which Mojo called his best album, Post-Sonic Youth, containing some of the best music that he has ever released, including this fantastic opening track. We're gonna drop in a bit of hashish now. Hypnotic, seductive, slightly sinister, and rich in riffs. 
Thurston doing what Thurston does best. by Thurston Moore, released by Daydream Library. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Thurston Moore. My guests today are Mojo Reviews editor Jenny Bully. Hello. And Mickey Bereni. Hello. Mickey was the lead vocalist and guitarist for much-loved dream pop four-piece Lush from 1987 to 1996, and she currently fronts the magnificent Poroshka alongside her partner, Moose McKillop, bassist Mick Conroy and drummer Justin Welsh. Hello, I'm Mickey Brenny, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Is it enough to just say Mickey Brenny? Surely, surely everyone fucking knows who I am. Yeah, right. <laughs> the record Mickey has brought in to talk about today is 30,000 Feet Over China by The Passions. And I'm, I'm really pleased that the, the, the record that you've, you've chosen to bring in today kind of, kind of brings all that together. Um, we'll talk about it in a sec, but first I want to let um, Simon Bates introduce the group and their singer, Barbara Gogan. Cliff Richard, of course, at number 15. And behind me, a new band called The Passions with a lady singer called Barbara who writes great songs. And prove it, she's going to sing her latest one, which is called I'm in Love with a German Film Star. Oh, my word. Brilliant. Fantastic. Lady. La- lady. 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 with the German film star by The Passions, released by Polydor. So the record is 30,000 Feet Over China by The Passions, released in 1981 on Polydor Records. So my first obvious question is, was this a record that you discovered as a teenager? Um, Yeah, I was was actually frantically trying to date when I would have got into this record did you say it was out in so German film came out star came in 81 mm. yeah so and, and German it, film star was 81 as well so that was January 81 yeah. I think the album came out like after the summer or something so it's just interesting because it was just Emma came to the school I think that September so what's, what's the, what school were you at that was at Queen's College yeah and um, so it was I was at Queen's probably quite newly arrived I think you know everybody watched Top of the Pops. Yeah. You know, I didn't really, ha- I didn't have older siblings, and actually, once I ended up with a group of friends at Queens, none of us did. So we didn't really have that kind of, oh, you know, my older brothers into the Doors or something. You know, we were just totally guessing our way. And the charts is like a really obvious place to begin. Everybody yeah. watches mm. Top of the Pops and blah blah blah. So, and I think what you end up with is also trying to find your own thing. So you have a group of friends, like Maxine and Bunny were like the police. 
all over the police. There was no way I could get in there. Um, <laughs> weren't allowed. When I was at Labrook Grove uh, State School before I went to Queen's, it was very scar, you know. Actually, I did love the specials and madness, all of that. But I think there was, um, you know, it's, it's something about finding your own one, right? And I think the passions were... You know, it was one hit. I mean, in my head, I thought it went way higher than that. It wasn't. Well, it was actually only. It's twenty-one. It got to number twenty-one in right. the charts. So not as even you, the top twenty. No, and basically, Polydor screwed up. I think they failed to press up enough copies of the record. No way. So after they appeared on top of the pops, people were turning up to record shops trying to buy the record, and there weren't any copies for sale. And they didn't press, and they, and when they finally did press up enough coffee copies, that the moment had had been and gone. That's terrible. Yeah, that's for a major label. Yeah. Bloody well, young. because I think they had no clue as to what was going to happen with that record and what you know whether that was going to be a hit or not. There literally weren't enough copies for people to buy. Wow. <laughs> When you read interviews with Barbara Gogan, I think she is still fuming about that now. No shit. (laughs) There's something about forcing yourself at that age to kind of expand even the way, like, really unfamiliar sounds. You know, it doesn't sound like anything that you're really used to. You know, I think what I... Like, Barbara Gogan has got... I mean, she's got a great voice, but it's much more fragile than the mainstream would have normally had at Absolutely. that time. Absolutely, and it's, I mean, it's quite a different sound from the sound they started out with. I should probably give a little bit of background on, on who they were. They came they came out of the same West London squat punk scene as The Clash. I mean, yeah. Wow. And, um, and in fact, the German film star that she sings about is actually... Um, Clash roadie Stephen Rodent Connolly because he'd been he'd been in a German miniseries in 1989 and so I think he she's taking the piss of, uh, out of out of Rodent by saying I'm in yeah. love with a German film star um, and like Lush they were two women and two men including the singer and guitarist Barbara Gogan and they're a massive John Peel favourite they did three sessions between the end of 1979 and the end of 1980. And um, their first record came out on Fiction Records, Home of the Cure. And there's an interview online with um, Barbara Gogan where she says, yeah, we, we toured a couple of time with the, times with the Cure, but we didn't really hang out with them. We were, we were older, political, squatters, feminists. They were much more suburban. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless. <laughs> I know. And, kind of, and so the first album's really quite jagged and mm. kind of, it's like, very like the au pairs or, yeah. or Girls at Our Best or something like that. And made with Mike Hedges, who of course yes. would go on to work with Lush on The Split. Yeah. Yeah. And is that, is, is that something that you discussed? Did you ever ask him about? I don't think I was aware of it. Right? Oh, right. No. Wow. I wasn't at all. I actually looked it up when, I think I looked it up on Wikipedia and I was yeah. like, oh, the Kedges did that. I didn't even know that. Hello. This week's episode contains some incendiary language, so proceed with caution. Or maybe just uh, skip the part where we introduce Country Joe and the Fish, because that's exactly where it is. OK, here we go. Good day, beloved listener. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Robin Hitchcock. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers and special guests get together to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems and brand new revelations. 
My guests today are the Mojo Editor, John Mulvey. Hello, Andrew. And Robin Hitchcock. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> Hello. Robin is one of the most unique and influential singer-songwriters this country's ever produced. Most people, I think, first became aware of him with post-punk neo-psych four-piece The Soft Boys, responsible for the sneering, humid, surreal pop masterpiece Underwater Moonlight from 1980. He was white and she was white as only statues are. Fifty years they stood there looking stupid by a jar. One night in mid-August when the Moonlight got too strong. They climbed off their pedestal. Underwater Moonlight by the Soft Boys, written by Robin Hitchcock, Kimberly Rue, Matthew Seligman, and Morris Windsor. Released on Matador Records. He then left to become an insanely creative solo artist, heading for Paradise or Basingstoke via Barrett, Bowie, Ferry, and the strange four corners of life, sex, death, and nature that most of us never notice. He's collaborated with everyone from R.E.M. and John Bryan to The Decemberists and Yola Tengo and has released a series of endlessly curious and inventive solo albums including recognised masterpieces such as 1984's I Often Dream of Trains, 1990's I and, who knows, his next album, Shuffle Mania, which is out in October. Thanks for coming in, Robin. Oh, it's a pleasure. Great to be here. <laughs> and the, the record you've brought in to talk about today is Electric Music for the Mind and Body by Country Joe and the Fish, released in 1967 on Vanguard Records. Now, before we start, I think we should play a little clip of how I first heard Country Joe and the Fish and why I think myself and a lot of other people subsequently avoided the group for years to come. Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam, did you help again? Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're gonna have a whole lot of fun. Country Jones Fish, I Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die. Written by Joe McDonald. Released by Vanguard Records. How did you first discover Country Joe and the Fish, Robin? And was that clip from, famous clip from the film Woodstock part of it no i first discovered country joe and the fish when it, the fish cheer was give me an f give me an i give me an s give me an h what's that spell fish yeah i was 15 i thought that was brilliant yeah and in moments of intoxication i still do it um <laughs> it, uh country joe and the fish had actually been going the fish was actually not the name of the band, there was the nickname of Barry Melton, the yeah. guitarist, who's probably the most striking musical feature of Country Joe and the Fish. Um, I, was, I was 14 in 1967, so, um, you know, that stuff just went straight into my frontal lobe, into my glands. You know, I've just been walking 1967 ever since, really. Is it a record that you'd read about or someone had played to you or was hanging on the wall in the shop? I mean, how, um, did, how did it arrive? It arrived like a lot of things did. I was in this strange penitentiary for 
bright, uh, well-off children um, and uh, boys, that is. And it was a sort of comprised a series of red brick stalags into which you were shut between the hours of six in the evening and and uh, eight in the morning unless you could grab the keys from the subterranean lair where a man named Mr. Trotter dwelled who would wake the youngest boy in the house at 7.15 in the morning and mutter Phillips into his ear at which point he had to go and say that to the rest of the house. In other words, I'm a public school casualty, boarding school casualty. The best thing about being at boarding school, the one I was at which was a, 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 an intellectual snob school rather than a social snob school, was that... Um, you know, in the late 60s, what was really happening was the Beatles and Dylan. And and then, you know, it took off from there. Yeah. So when I got to the place at the beginning of 66, the, the hipsters were listening to jazz and the, uh, the jocks, the meatheads, were listening to the Beach Boys. And, um, and by the end of the year, everybody was listening to Blonde on Blonde and Good Vibrations and stuff. And then you get these... American kids coming in um, with their hard-covered records with the timings and the gatefold sleeves. I don't know if you guys are quite old enough to remember things like one-stop records, but the thing, the greatest currency of all was to have an American import several months before yeah. it came out. Danny Baker has talked voluminously about one-stop records because I think he worked there for a while. Did he? Yeah. He's probably almost my vintage, although he wouldn't have gone the same route as me to yeah. getting into it. I, I mean... You know, we never, uh, we, what I'd never had was the indie record store thing of, you know, which all my American frolleagues had. But, um, yeah, so, you know, so basically some, some wannabe hipster kid in 1967 shambled up with a copy of Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die, the second Country Joe album, which is where the fish cheer was from, and it followed up with Electric Music, which was actually a stronger record. Mm, very much. So basically, sorry, that's a long preamble, but it gives you, you know, where I'm, where I come from in terms of music and how I, why this stuff is so deeply in my DNA. I should probably maybe give the good little time, uh, time to stop and give a bit of background on who Country Joe and the Fish were. They were formed in 1965 by two West Coast folk and jug band uh, habitués, Country Joe McDonald and Barry the Fish Melton. They were, I suppose, underground radicals, anti-war protesters, um, and originally formed the group as a sort of satirical mouthpiece for political protest. But with the help of lots of LSD, bass player Bruce Barthold, the electric organ of David Cohen, as you've mentioned, Barry Melton's weird electric guitar, and the fantastic hypnotic drums of Gary Chicken Hirsch and a bit and also um country Joe McDonald's uh, love of John Fahey as well. Um they develop into I suppose an early psychedelic rock sound which they which they showcase on this debut album Electric Music for the Mind and Body. What was it about that sound that appealed to you when you first heard the record? Uh the overall sound basically the way it went together and so you had Bruce Barthol on bass and Gary Chicken Hirsch, who sadly just passed away, on drums. Um, and you know they weren't Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker or any of those. They weren't. They weren't kind of rated as high end musos, but they were actually very good. They just used to make these sort of landscapes. You know, Hirsch didn't play a. 
He was a very un-80s drummer, as a lot of drummers were in the 60s. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was not all about going, do, 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 you know. Yeah. So you'd have these rolling toms and, and bits of snare and stuff. And, but they were obviously listening to each other. And then you had um, David Cohen, who played, you know, not bad guitar, and he played, he had, maybe it was a far feeter. It was a sort of yeah. tinny sounding, but very distinctive keyboard. Like that, you know. Yeah. And then, Incredibly high up in the mix. So you yes. do get that kind of sense of it's distorting the speakers. Yeah, yeah. It's all, it's all sort of right there. Yeah. And then Barry, who would just play, just, um, he just played this, lead guitar that would go all over the place but somehow always land on the right notes but he was not because he was modal or something he was never seen in the same league as you know Clapton, Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, all the sort of guitar heroes that mushroomed up in 1967 and then triggered this onslaught of sort of mediocre metalloid three pieces that when I started going to gigs that's that's in 68, 69, it was quite easy to see you didn't have to write songs anymore. You just had to kind of have the right gear, look right, plug in and and just, you know, waffle on for 10 minutes. And um, so I became very cynical very early about everything. <laughs> do, you think, do you think that the way he played guitar was in some ways closer to someone like Sid Barrett? That kind of spindly, ambulatory yes. way of playing that felt slight, you know, wandering around the song rather than uh, yeah. sort of crashing through power chords in the power trio. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, he, 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 him and uh, my Barrow, I mean, another, another of my heroes in many ways was, yeah, I mean, I suppose they weren't people, people didn't point to, to Barry Melton or Sid Barrett. As, I mean, also, I'd say Lou Reed and I'd also say two guys that played in Beefheart's guitarists. Yeah. You know, and there were various, but there'd be left hand and right hand, yeah. Bill Harkle Road and whoever Antennae Jimmy Siemens was, but they had this sort of spindly... Yeah. It wasn't power chords. Yeah. Uh, they, they, uh, those were the guitarists I loved and emulated rather than, you know, trying to play like Eric Clapton, really. Yeah. It's a tradition that seems a, a step away from our usual concepts of virtuosity, I guess. Yeah, it's not... It, I suppose you wouldn't... I don't know. I mean, I even got to... I got to play with Barry Melton years later at a festival in France. And he became... Barry became an attorney in the 1980s and uh, wanders around. I think he still still walks the earth. Um, but, you know, he... He still he could still play. It, it wasn't. It didn't have the same kind of manipulation that yeah. it had on. Uh, God, if you listen to the end of section forty three, I think when when they let Barry loose at the end, he just goes all over the place. And we should and we'll play a little bit of that later. But I one the first track I wanted to play was um, a little bit of not so sweet Martha Lorraine, because to me it seems like the track that's perhaps most directly related to the Robin Hitchcock sound we can talk a little bit about that in a second but maybe play a little bit of that not so sweet martha lorraine country joe and the fish written by joe mcdonald released by vanguard records she hides in an 
addict concealed on a shelf Behind These could be Robin Hitchcock lyrics <laughs> Well he got there first <laughs> <laughs> But I'm sure I spent a long time trying to write that one <laughs> You're still listening to the Mojo Record Club Let's finish with a little taste of next year's first episode with the legendary Mick Head, recipient of Mojo's Best Album of 2022. How did it feel um, making Mojo's Album of the Year? Amazing, you know, just a recognition for something that, and as people tell me, you know, that's fucking big, that Mick, you know what I mean? And I'm going, I know, you know, tell me about it. Um, You know, to just... Everybody who was involved, and I know I've said it before in interview, but when you look back on it and you you, you pick up on, um, uh, you know what the, the work Alice did, you know backstage, uh, the actual um, record itself, Bill's input, and the, the lads from the record label, but the lads in the band as well, you know, not just playing, the talent, but as young men, yes, you know, really. Massive input into the um, into it. So to get like you know um, recognition for that is 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 it's massive. You know it's um, soul cleansing. You know what soul I mean? Soul cleansing. Yeah. That's, that's Never, big. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's um, it is it um, gives you a little bit of faith. Yeah. You know that. You know, sometimes when you're playing live at a gig, it's like us and the, the audience. It's uh, in that room for that time, out there, doesn't really matter. You know, obviously when the lights go on and we all go outside, it does. But um, yeah, I think the album itself is, um, encapsulated a lot of beauty, emotions, different emotions. And so yet that, recognition from yourselves and is it for us it's massive yeah i I don't know whether i i don't know who to yeah i'll leave it at that (laughs) no thank thank you you, mick it's it's a big thing really album of the year let's have it you know it's a a fucking bit someone (laughs) said to me all them fucking albums and when I, i thought about it i thought yeah yeah thank you for listening to the mojo record club this is michael head from the red elastic band Getting the swing now. Yeah. This is Michael Head from News at 10. All the best. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> the papers. <laughs> Perfect.